welcome to the Ada Lovelace Day podcast. I'm Sue Charman-Anderson and this month we're talking to Dawn Childs about her work as the Group Engineering Director for Merlin Entertainments. We also talk to science writer and broadcaster Dr Kat Arney about cell biologist Professor Dame Amanda Fisher and her pioneering work on HIV, immunology and epigenetics. And we take a look at the development of the first home security system using CCTV by Mary Van Britten Brown in the 1960s. But before we launch into the show, Christmas is just a month away, which means that now is a great time to visit our shop and buy a few presents for friends and family. We've got notebooks, journals, t-shirts, posters and more available on redbubble.com, as well as our two Passion for Science ebooks available on Amazon. Just visit findingada.com slash shop for links. So this month I'm talking to Dawn Childs, who is the Group Engineering Director at Merlin Entertainments. Hi Dawn. Hi there. So um, Merlin Entertainments, I have the feeling that a lot of people will know what you do, even if they might not have heard of you. So what, what does Merlin Entertainments do? So Merlin runs attractions around the globe and uh, it ranges from parks to all of the Sea Life Centres, Madame Tussauds, all of the eye ranges, so the London Eye, uh, London Dungeons and all of the dungeons around the world. And of course, a very famous brand is Legoland and all of the Legoland Discovery Centres. Quite a a global, far-reaching output in terms of entertainment, giving lots of families and guests memorable experiences. So engineering isn't necessarily something that maybe people associate with an aquarium or the London dungeon. So how does your job fit in to these entertainments? Very far reaching in terms of the breadth of disciplines. There's the facilities pieces, so the buildings, all the stuff you'd associate with just an operating facility. But of course, there's the roller coasters, the big crunchy things. And within, for example, a dungeon set up, we will have a drop ride, which is a a park ride, but within an, an enclosed space. Of course, the aquarium systems are really very technical. So all of the life support systems for the sea creatures that we have are super critical because we we need to keep them in absolutely perfect condition and as comfortable as possible. Uh, We have large items like the London Eye, which is very obviously um, hardcore engineering uh, at its heart. And there are just so many pieces from flushing toilets and keeping those operating to the big roller coasters and literally everything in between. So from a technical perspective and engineering, it is a vast breadth that we have to look after. So that is actually a really broad sweep of of different aspects of engineering. I can imagine that the expertise you need for uh, an aquarium is not going to be the same as what you need for a roller coaster. So How do you span such a broad range of engineering issues? As a technical director, I like to think of myself as um, overseeing everything, but not being an expert in any of it. And and I have to rely on my experts at the attractions who know if it's a roller coaster, they know the systems inside out. If it's an aquarium and it's the life support systems for the creatures, they again know those systems inside out. However, if if they tell me about the systems, if there's a problem or a challenge, I have a, a good, diverse technical Um, grounding and I can then help them to solve any of the challenges that they have or to link in with suppliers and think about the strategy in terms of maintenance that we're going to adopt. What kind of skills do you think you bring to this role? Because obviously, I'd say, you know, you need to be a bit of a generalist, but where where do you think your strengths are and, and how do they play into your position? I think my strengths lie in being able to have a strategic vision, have a good idea of what our maintenance strategy needs to focus on to achieve the output that is needed, um, but also the ability to dive right down to that very technical, tactical detail and uh, have the -the on-the-ground technician explain to me the challenges that they have, and I can then think about what I need to change in terms of strategy to enable them to to fix and solve their challenges. It seems like a very collaborative position. Most definitely. There's no way, I think, that an engineer of any kind can exist in isolation unless you happen to be designing the very next thing, Uh, you know, if it's a a rocket and you're doing a particular system and you're doing that on your own. uh, It's very difficult to work in isolation. You have to work with the operators of the systems 
that you're going to be supporting and maintaining. You have to work with suppliers. You have to work with other designers. So it really is a collaborative process. And from a Merlin perspective, our key customer as engineers are the operators. So although you might think it could be the guest because they experience the the roller coaster or the fish in the aquarium, um, it's actually the operators of the attractions that are the customers for for the engineers. We deliver to them so that they can then provide it to the guests. Right, that's kind of really interesting because, like you say, I think most people would have assumed that the your guests would be sort of forefront. But when you're talking about your your operators, what what is it that they need from you? What what are you providing? So they need to know that uh, if, for example, they are the operator of a roller coaster, they need to know that they're going to get that roller coaster handed to them at, for example, half past nine in the morning, so they can open it and operate it at ten o'clock for the guests. So so they need to know that the system is fully operational. Uh, working as it should be and that there are no faults and they have to trust us to give it to them by that time so so that's why I say they're our main customer because they then showcase it and allow the guests to use it Um, it's a very poor day I think if the guests have to come and interact with the technicians because you know it could be that there's a fault and the guests do get to speak with the technicians but that shouldn't happen as a routine basis it should be the operators that interface with the guests and the technicians that deliver the systems to the operators. How did you end up as Group Engineering Director? What's your background? I started my career in the Air Force and joined the Air Force at the age of 17. They sponsored me through university and I stayed with them for 23 years. So my original degree was Mechanical Engineering But as you would imagine in the Air Force, we majored on aeronautical engineering and aircraft. So uh, so I then did quite a a significant amount of training with the Air Force to, uh, to shape my engineering background further to aeronautical. When I left the Air Force, uh, I I elected to leave just to try and move my career on a bit further because the Air Force was downsizing. After 23 years looking after aircraft, it was quite a a challenge to find something else that wasn't looking after aircraft, but I was very keen to diversify. So uh, I moved to Gatwick Airport and that enabled me to become a little bit more of a generalist. And there I was looking after the infrastructure of the airport rather than the aircraft. So that was a focus more on civil engineering, on the the bits of the mechanical, but mechanical and electrical and facilities focused items, which of course then turned me into this very broad generalist that I am now and made me, I think, perfect for this role at Merlin, where I have this very broad coverage in terms of systems and aspects that I'm looking after. Wow. That seems like quite a big career pivot that you had to do. I mean, how how did you work out what the next step is? Because it can be quite daunting if you've had a career, you know, for, for that length of time in a very niche area to then find a way to, to, to reinvent yourself. How did you do that? It was massively daunting and that there's a little bit of uh, planning, but there's also quite a lot of uh, happenstance. And and I would say luck, but I try to avoid the word luck because I I think I've worked hard. And although you might have a few lucky breaks, it's it's a lot of hard work rather than the luck that plays the part. Uh, So I took a conscious decision to take a, a backwards career step. Uh, to to move to Gatwick. So I went from the sort of head of engineering role that I'd had in the Air Force at that that level and moved back to a senior engineering manager role at the airport just to try and uh, get myself more into a business brain, so a civilian business thought process rather than military, which which is quite different, um, but also to learn about the particular engineering that you have at an airport rather than aircraft. It, It sort of, it worked very well for me because I was able to figure out what was happening at the airport. Unfortunately, though, the head of engineering role at the airport came up literally within a matter of days of me turning up for my senior engineering manager role. So within six weeks, I'd actually applied for and got the head of engineering job at the airport. I, I didn't have quite as much time as I was expecting to uh, to get myself more civilian business focused and more into um, civil engineering and facilities management. Uh, but but it was it was a transition that, uh, that I worked very hard to achieve and it did pay off for me. Excellent. And it sounds like they certainly felt that you had exactly what they needed to allow you to, to move up so quickly after joining. In terms of if you were talking to a young engineer now who was looking at the kinds of work that you do and looking at um, employers like Merlin, you know, what would you advise them if they wanted your job? 
to make themselves uh, general uh, rather than very specific. So if, if you get into a role that's very niche and very specific, I think you have to love that and want to do that for the rest of your career. If you want to be more an engineering manager, which is what I consider myself, then you need to be very generalist and look at the business side of engineering rather than just the technical side of engineering. Because a lot of the decisions that, that I made both at the airport and also that I make in Merlin now are very business related. So it's it's making uh, technical decisions and judgments that also make sense from a business perspective. And if you're not able to do that translation into the business world, then it makes it very difficult for you to uh, have an influence over the board and to, to be able to sell what you're doing as an engineer up to that sort of board level and have that high level conversation from a business perspective. So yeah, I think being bit more generalist from an engineering viewpoint and very business focused uh, are key elements to being a director of engineering. It's interesting because quite often we hear the opposite. We hear, you know, specialise, specialise, specialise. Um, and, and I wonder sometimes if we are focusing too much on tight niches. It's not just a huge role to play for generalists, but I think generalists are much more important than perhaps we imagine um do you see a lot of people who could do with being more generalists so i think there's room for for both specialists and generalists and we absolutely need both because you're not going to design the next aircraft with a bunch of generalists but nor are you going to run a business with a bunch of specialists so you need both disciplines and i think the best thing for a uh, you know an engineer to do either a current engineer or a future engineer to do is to figure out what they would like to be because it's quite difficult to become very very specialist and then branch out afterwards and the same is true of the opposite side of the coin, where if you've been very generalist from the beginning of your career, to then suddenly retrain and become the person designing the next space shuttle could be quite difficult. So I think you need to understand where your passion lies and follow that. The most important thing is not to look at other people's careers and go, okay, that's what I need to do because I want to be them. The most important thing to do is to decide what is right for you and what you enjoy and what you like, because you can, you know, look at somebody and think they're doing an amazing job. But if you wouldn't enjoy the job that they're doing, then it's not right for you. And you shouldn't have anybody tell you that you should do that. So always follow your passion. And if you want to design the next space shuttle, fantastic. We need all of those specialist engineers. But we also need some very good engineers to be engineering directors of very large businesses. I think the the point that you make about being able to translate the engineering to a business context, you know, that's true in a lot of different areas of STEM. I mean, I see this a lot in technology that actually the ability to to translate, it's not even jargon, it's just the technical knowledge between the, the sort of developers, say, and, and management is, I think, a very underrated skill. I think it's a very important skill. Yes. Uh, and you know, everything uh, within a business, so whether it's a the facilities in the buildings or whether it is a more technical focused business and you actually have large items of plant and equipment, maybe in manufacturing, you have to understand the impact that the, the serviceability or availability of all of those items have on the business and also the need to reinvest in them and the amount of um, you know downtime, for example, in a manufacturing facility is massively important to the business output and to the profitability of the business. So you want to minimise that as much as possible and you need to be able to explain the the engineering the servicing you need to do to maximize or optimize that availability but you also need to be able to make sure that you're giving that technical equipment the best chance it has of performing so you need to figure out both the technical side and the business element and and I think that's quite a skill yeah I think so too and I think as well it's the business side of things and the communications chunk of that is is really important and maybe something that can get difficult to get the right experience and exposure to those skills I mean how do you think people can can go about acquiring those skills I think practice is key so if you if you think about a a business case uh, for building something or a business case for maintaining something and needing extra money, you need to be able to summarise that in a way that isn't a very long technical report. So I often see in a lot of the engineering institutes, 
um, classes on how to write technical reports, which is great, but really the bit you need is the executive summary and the so what, which is the bit that any business leader will want to read. They, they don't want to see the detail. They want to know the details there and they want to know that it's been done and it's been done correctly, but they want the, the so what piece. And I think there, there should you know, potentially be more training around how to pick those key pieces out of the very detailed work that's been done that will make the difference. Mm, it's almost kind of like they need a, a almost like news journalism training because part of that is you know what's the story why should anyone care and yeah how am I going to explain this to people um and that that seems like you know, we hear a lot about uh science communication and training around science comms we don't hear so much about engineering communication as a distinct discipline do you, do you think it needs to become one I think it would be very useful because I think we would then maybe see more engineers rising up to board level. And um, I think you'd then get a very good balance uh, on the higher level business boards if you have that technical input at the board board level that can also, you know, understand that the deeper technical challenges that the business has. Uh, Because at the moment, I think it moves up and you get an awful lot of um, you know, commercial focus, HR, marketing maybe, but there are very few um, te- technical people, engineers sat on boards unless they've changed their career at an early point and maybe were an engineer for a few years and then moved into the commercial side or procurement or something. So I think it would be very good to have those skill sets to enable more people to rise through engineering and then move into uh, to, you know, steering businesses. Yeah, absolutely agree. You have quite a, a, a broad portfolio in terms of, of what you do. What Which bit gets you most excited? What What's the, the part of your job that gets you up on a Monday morning? So there are a couple of aspects that, that I find hugely thrilling. Um, one is getting really embroiled in proper technical challenges. So I love nothing more than having to go to a site and talking through a technical problem that, that we've had and have a, you know, a technician or on-site engineer going through the problem with me and, and then me going back to my engineering roots and coming up with a thought as to how we might solve it. Love that. That's really great. And because we have such a diverse amount of equipment, it's very different every time. Um, but the other thing that, that I truly passionately love is the the people and uh, making a difference to the people to help them to be able to do the job in the best way. So uh, you know, pe- people might think it's just HR challenges, but it's about finding the, the right shift pattern. Maybe you know, if, if our output hasn't been correct, figuring out how we can allow the engineers to do their job um, properly or optimise it by changing the shift pattern to deliver that output and, and you know, really maximising the demands of the business with the uh, the technical ability that we've got in terms of people and linking in with the people so yeah I I love working with people and is there a particular attraction that is is your favorite I couldn't possibly have a favorite attraction that would be awful for me to say (laughs) absolutely awful but uh, you know I I am a sucker for a roller coaster to be fair Fair enough fair enough um so you mentioned earlier uh the the challenge you you face moving from a very sort of specific military background and, and very specific engineering focus to something more more general. Are there other challenges that you've had to deal with where where you feel like, you know, actually really did a good job there? When I was in the military, you did a lot of sport and there was the uh, the ability to do a lot of sport. And I was actually the, the chairman of RAF equitation for quite a number of years, which is a bit random and not particularly linked with engineering. But uh, but we won the uh, the Royal Windsor Horse Show. We won the uh, the team of the year. So so we competed against the army, who actually part of their day job is riding horses, and they were on the horses they ride for their day job. We had our horses that we had as you know for our hobby, and we went there and we competed against them, and we won. And we did the uh, the mounted units and the dismounted units, won the double, and they then changed the rules after that, so nobody else can do it again. So uh, so that was a amazing challenge for me it's something that I worked for years to to get into the team become the chairman and then to actually win that was uh, was super fantastic and you know presented with the prize by the queen and so on so uh, being an engineer you don't just do engineering there are other things that you can do and you can get involved in so yeah I loved it that's fantastic and you know you've really broken new ground when they change the rules to stop it happening again I know I know well uh, yeah I I couldn't possibly say but that's the army for you So in terms of um, how you see your career developing, you know, you're kind of group engineering director. That seems like you're pretty much at the top now. Um, where else could you 
go? Where else would you want to take your career? So there's still quite a bit of work to be done at Merlin to to get the uh, engineering where I would want it to be in terms of standards uh, around the globe. Um, And so I see there's quite a few years yet in in getting that to be what I would call steady state uh, because the group engineering function was only set up um, and and I was brought in to lead it so that was only 18 months ago so got quite a bit to do just to uh, to bring all of the the different global sites you know onto the same page uh, in terms of standards and practices and and also to set up a a UK-wide apprenticeship scheme for uh, this new type of engineering that I'm managing to launch which is leisure and entertainment so definitely want to get that completely landed and get it to a steady state position but after that I'd very much like to to go on to be um, you know a higher level business leader I know group engineering director sounds high enough but uh, but yeah I'd, I'd like to uh, to go on in what's sort of the uh, um, CEO or, or executive board oh, level. That's fantastic and I think you know there is there is no high enough why why should we settle for anything? So I'm, I'm curious that the part of Merlin that you um, are, are managing is is new how did it come about why did they decide to to create this function? So Merlin as a business has, has had quite an extraordinary journey and um, through mergers and acquisitions and through building new openings, so new parks and attractions, it has grown exponentially over the last decade or so. And and as that's been happening, more and more central functions have had to be brought into place to ensure that everywhere is operating in in the sort of the same method. And the group engineering was just the, the next piece to be done if you like so um, it it was seen as a a requirement and although every single attraction was operating its own right and everything they were doing was just fine there was differences or there were differences between for example the way Legoland Malaysia was uh, was maintaining um, its, its attraction and the way they were doing it at Thorpe Park and so it's just aligning those pieces of work to make sure that we're all delivering exactly the same output in exactly the same way. And, and I think some of it might be because the, um, the particular manuals you get for plant and equipment and for the roller coasters can be interpreted. And so you might find that they've learned something new at Malaysia that they've implemented, but that didn't yet get read across to, to Thought Park or vice versa. So you know, I, I'm able to make sure that every lesson that's learned in every single park can then be read across to all of the other parks. And, and it just allows us to operate in a better way it's interesting because we do have a tendency to assume that once something like a roller coaster is built well that's it it's just a matter of keeping it oiled but that can't possibly be true so it's the same with um if you think you've got a car and you maintain it something might happen to that particular car and you learn something new about it in terms of oh well i need to now it's a bit older i need to check this every week rather than every month. Um, it's the same with roller coasters. And, and if I think about our Legoland parks, um, California is one of the oldest parks, Windsor. And uh, then we have very new parks in, in Malaysia, for example. So so you, you know, why wouldn't you apply the lessons that you're learning for your, from your aging assets in Windsor and California to the parks in Malaysia? It just, you know, for me, it, it's common sense, but it just hadn't been put in place yet because the business was growing. I want to get back to something else that you mentioned as well, so apprenticeships, because again, you know, we, we have this tendency to assume that the career route into engineering is that you do A-levels, you go to university, you get your degree, and then you move into the workforce. But there, there's an increasing focus now on, on apprenticeships and, and on technicians. And what kind of role do technicians and apprentices play in Merlin? So the technicians will... Uh operate either in a a smaller attraction as the the facilities person so they might be opening up the the facilities and maybe have a small ride to look after but in um, the larger parks they will be setting up and maintaining the the large rides and attractions and they'll all be allocated certain rides to become experts on and it's oftentimes better to train somebody from from the get-go if they've got a, a great sort of science background they like science subjects at school why wouldn't we bring them in and train them specifically to our particular types of equipment we did used to have apprentices years before uh, within Merlin but they were either mechanical or electrical and uh, we then had to try and, and train them more for the, the theme park and the attraction business that we were in so uh, with the emphasis on apprentices that we now have in the UK, I was able to to use that as an opportunity to develop a new engineering standard for leisure and entertainment engineering, specifically for 
the uh, the entertainment sector, which we didn't have before. And then that takes in all of the very important safety aspects um, that any liaison with, with guests. So, for example, some of the technicians need to go and uh, evacuate guests from ride if there's a technical problem and the ride stops. And, you know, and then that's something that's very different. A lot of normal technicians wouldn't ever get involved in that sort of um, that sort of activity. So safety is paramount. And I don't think it had yet been uh, developed and trained at the college level for other engineers. So, so I wanted to develop something new for our, our industry specifically, so that we were getting absolutely perfect technicians every single time, rather than having to, to take a, an electrical or mechanical guy and train them in, in the wider aspects that we use. I think we have had an issue in the UK with uh, people looking down on apprentices. You know, there's a lot of really good work being done at the moment to show you know just how important apprentices and technicians really are. Um, you know, do you think that creating this this new standard kind of helps people understand the the critical role that they can play getting into engineering through that route? Yes, definitely, because. You can go and get a degree in engineering, but that sort of academic study isn't necessarily the right method for everybody to get into engineering. Some people like to have a bit more of a hands-on route from the beginning. And the apprenticeship scheme is a lovely blend of uh, some lecture-based, college-based learning but also the practical elements from the outset. So you, you get to work on the equipment that you're learning about. So you learn the theory, but you also do the practical elements at the same time, whereas in a degree in engineering, you don't get to do that. Yeah, excellent. And I think that would be um, really exciting for uh, for anyone who really loves getting their hands dirty and, and getting kind of really sort of hip deep in the equipment and and the engineering. I mean, I was at a a university technical college in in October and some of the equipment that they had there was just amazing. Um, And I was just like, I wish we'd had this when I was at school. I would have been totally all over it. Um, And I think, you know, it's a really great opportunity to open up the STEM careers to a, a much broader group of people that, you know, it's not just about being academic it's not just about going to university and I think that's really important we yeah and and it's a bit like the blend that we were talking about earlier of um, technical specialists versus um, generalists and managers you you also need a blend of um, you know theorists versus hands-on you know people who are going to fix things so you know I have some of my engineering managers who have a degree but also then came up through the hands-on technical piece um, and then went into the engineering management area I have some um, degree level qualified people who went straight into the engineering management area and never did the hands-on skills piece so in terms of maintaining things Um, so yeah there's a blend there's there's the right route for anybody or for everybody and I think it's important that uh, that each individual figures out what would work the best for them so if they like the academic study and they want to learn the theory of stuff first brilliant if they don't particularly like the academic study but they they know they want to be an engineer then perhaps the apprenticeship route is the right one for them where they do sufficient academics to really understand the theory of it but also do the hands-on element at the same time again it's horses for courses and there's a blend needed we we need some of every single type so there's no this is the only way to be an engineer that there's a whole plethora of ways and pathways in i think that's a fantastic note to end with we we need all sorts of people thank you so much dawn this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation and uh, thank you for giving us your time this month no problem at all thanks to dawn for giving us such a fascinating guided tour of her work you can find out more about Dawn on our website at findingada.com slash podcast. Our podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of ARM, our exclusive semiconductor industry sponsor. You can find out more about ARM's energy-efficient microprocessor technology on their website at arm.com, and you can follow them on Twitter at ARM Holdings. Now it's time for our Invention of the Month, and I'm delighted to introduce our guest contributor for this month, Melanie Phillips, who's going to take you back in time to Queens, New York in the mid-1960s. Queens in the 60s wasn't a safe place to live. Crime levels were high and the police took a long time to respond to calls. With the streets, corner shops and alleys fraught with danger, it's hard to even feel safe in your own home.
On hearing a knock at the door, how were you to know whether the person stood outside was a friendly neighbour or a fleeing criminal? This was a particular problem for Marie Van Britten Brown, our inventor. Marie, an African-American woman, was a nurse, while her husband Albert was an electrical technician. The two worked opposite hours, meaning Marie was often left alone at home at night. Marie wanted to keep her home safe from unwanted intruders, and realised that to do this she needed to be able to see who was standing outside her home, without having to open the door. And so, Marie designed a system that allowed her to do just that. Marie's system had a closed-circuit television camera that could be attached to a cabinet on a front door and a set of four peepholes. The camera would slide up and down the door to look out of each one. The four peepholes meant that you could see a person outside of any height, with the lowest peephole for a child and the highest for a tall adult. The camera was linked up to a remote monitor which Marie planned to keep in her bedroom. The system also included a speaker and a microphone, allowing the person inside the house and the person at the door to communicate without the door being opened. Marie built in an alert function so that if the user was concerned about the person at the door, they could press a button which would alert a neighbourhood watchman, a neighbour close by, or even a security firm. Modern home security systems, while often smaller and more compact, contain all the key features of Marie's design. Marie described the use of the system saying, a woman alone could set off an alarm immediately by pressing a button, or if the system were installed in a doctor's office, it might prevent holdups by drug addicts. No one else was designing or even really thinking about security systems in the 60s, which is pretty surprising when we think of how prolific they are today. Marie's system was a first of its kind. She and her husband Albert applied for a patent for the system in 1966, and their patent was granted. The patent has been referenced by 13 other inventors in designing similar systems, most recently in 2013. The fact that no one else was thinking about home security in the 60s is a point to reflect on. When we are protected by state and society, there is no need for us to find ways to protect ourselves. It's telling that Marie, an African-American woman, was the first who recognised and acted on the need to find a way to keep herself safe, perhaps because those around her had failed to. So this month I'm joined by Dr Kat Arney, who is a science writer and broadcaster based just outside of London. Hi Kat! Hello! So who are you going to be talking to us about this month? So I am going to be talking about Professor Dame Amanda Fisher, or as I know her, Mandy Fisher. Uh, she is currently the director of the MRC London Institute of Medical Sciences at Imperial College London. And that's sort of based out near White City out in West London. But I really want to focus on her because not only is she an amazing scientist, an incredible advocate for women in science, uh, an incredible advocate for public communication, uh, interacting arts and science. Uh, she was also my postdoc boss. So she was the last person that I worked for before I left the lab. And that is not a reflection on her. But actually, she really helped me transition from life in the lab to kind of life in the science comms world. And I just think she's amazing. She's one of the nicest people I know, and an incredibly brilliant scientist, but also very gentle and quiet and not one of these kind of you know ball busting or willy waving kind of scientists she's just lovely and amazing wow and what's her field of expertise and, and by extension what was your field of expertise well so my original field that drew me to work with her was something called epigenetics which is kind of understanding i guess if if genetics your genes are what you've got epigenetics is what you do with it. So it's understanding how do we turn on the right genes at the right time in the right place? How is all our DNA organized inside cells? Like what are the signals that tell genes to be turned on and off? And how do cells remember what they're meant to be up to? Now, I went to work in her lab and it was called the Lymphocyte Development Lab. And this was a bit weird because uh, lymphocytes are cells in our immune system. They sort of help us to fight infections. And the reason that I went there to study these kind of questions about how do our genes work is that Mandy had 
originally started as someone who was very interested in the immune system, but she was very interested in the cells of the immune system. Now, I don't know if you know much about sort of the the sort of cells in your immune system. When we're at school, we learn that there are red blood cells and there are white blood cells. And actually, it turns out there's like loads and loads and loads and loads of different types of white blood cells. And so they all start from the same kind of precursor cell. So like, how do those choices get made to make one type of cell or another type of cell or another type of immune cell? So she was really interested in this process of, of lymphocyte development. How do you go from a, a kind of a naive precursor to make all these different types of cells? And that is an epigenetic question. And so by the time I came to work with her, she was doing all these incredible techniques in the lab. She uh, and her postdoc, Karen Brown, had developed a technique called immunofish, which is sort of combining a technique called immunofluorescence and a technique called fish, which enabled them to see where genes were inside the nucleus of a cell and also whether they were active or not and whether there were certain proteins associated with them or not. And it was really complex stuff. But suddenly you could almost like open this window into a cell and see how it was making these choices about which genes to turn on and off. And that's really where her work has started to go now is into this area of, well, how do you how do cells decide what they're going to be? How do they make decisions and program themselves? And then also by the time I'd got there, uh, this was sort of early 2000s, she started to get interested in how do you program cells? How do you turn them back? How do you take a white blood cell that's made all these decisions and then wind the clock back and make it forget? So I just thought these questions were absolutely fascinating. And that's why I went to work with Mandy. And that's really where she's kind of made her name, um, certainly in the, in the past decade or so. Wow. I mean, it is one of the core questions in, in medicine, isn't it? How do we understand how cells decide what they're going to do? Because I'm reaching slightly here in terms of my personal body of knowledge but doesn't this have an impact on diseases like cancer and HIV is like how a cell decides what's going to happen yeah there's some stuff in that because cancer cells sort of forget what they were meant to be doing they they forget that they're meant to be a normal part of the skin or the bowel or, or the breast duct or wherever they are and they sort of they they go ah stuff all those rules I'm gonna just go and do my own thing. But it's also really important for questions about um, fundamental questions about development. You know, how do we go from one cell, one fertilized egg to making a baby? Because you start with one fertilized egg cell, you become like a little clump of stem cells. And those stem cells multiply, they make decisions, they turn genes on, they turn genes off, they kind of lock in patterns. And if we want to understand how we can use stem cells, for example, in regenerative medicine, how can we turn some stem cells into, say, pancreatic tissue for people who need transplants? You know, we really need to understand how do cells make decisions and then how can we erase those decisions? And Mandy's work was really focusing right at the sort of the molecular nuts and bolts of that, looking at the DNA, looking at the molecules that sit on it, the molecules that package it up and uh, kind of act almost like as molecular post-it notes, helping cells to remember what they're meant to be doing and, uh, and trying to understand how that changes. And uh, that's actually kind of where she's ended up now. And I, I did just want to talk about a little bit about her original work. So when she first entered the scientific world, she was working with a guy called Robert Gallo. And he was basically a researcher who worked in HIV, and so this was obviously a few decades ago when people didn't really know anything about HIV. They just knew that there was this disease that people seemed to be getting. And Mandy was actually uh, the first person in his lab. She was the first person to make a functional version of HIV, of the HIV virus, so that you could start studying it in the lab, understanding how it was working, understanding how it was making immune cells become faulty. Uh, and that would lead to, to AIDS, to acquired immunodeficiency uh, syndrome, which is what AIDS is. So that, I think, was her entry into the world of science and entry into the immune system. And it's just been wonderful to see how she started with sort of a virus and now she moved into the immune system. And now her work is answering really fundamental questions about, like, why are cells like they are? And uh, I think her body of work has just been been phenomenal. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly with HIV, because as you say, it sort of really for the, the longest time, we didn't know that much about it. And to be at that stage of, of work and, and producing these first functional copies of HIV, I mean, that's that's pretty major work. Yeah. And also kind of you think about it like a little bit scary. Uh, it's like dealing with this virus that no one really knows what it's doing. Uh, but yeah, her work was and, and the work of Robert Gallo was really seminal in showing that HIV is the thing that causes AIDS. It does it by interacting with certain cells in the immune system. And, and that sort of starts the progression of this disease. And obviously now HIV is, is pretty much, you know, we can't say it's cured, but it's because people who are infected still have viral infection. But it's really, really well managed. And you think maybe in a couple of decades, it's gone from this disease that that no one understood that was this just just awful awful killer um particularly affecting like mainly a group of the population that people didn't really want to think about sort of mainly affecting gay men to suddenly a disease that is incredibly widespread but actually now is manageable and a lot of that really comes back to the work that that Gallo and Mandy Fisher were doing wow yeah, that's amazing. And of course, because um, HIV is is very much a, a disease of the immune system, you know, to then go on to um, issues like uh, T cell development, that's something else that she did. It's all related, isn't it? Yeah, I thought, you know, it was HIV her sort of gateway drug into the rest of the immune system. I don't know, just dealing with one set of T cells wasn't enough. She wanted to do all of them. Uh, I don't know whether what the thought process was there. Um, but yeah, I and it was weird for me because I never did immunology at university. I always found it absolutely baffling. And uh, I've actually worked in two immunology labs in my life by accident because I was more interested in the the kind of the, the bigger questions those labs were asking. And I think that's interesting as well. Like immunology labs touch on a lot of really fundamental things. You know, how do you turn genes on and off? How do you make decisions? The immune system is incredibly incredibly complicated we're really just scratching the surface of what we understand but there's an awful lot known about the sort of the different cell types and and the nitty-gritty of what goes on there and it's almost like a a kind of an easily studyable paradigm for how do cells work out what to do and remember you know I still don't really like immunology I try and avoid ever writing about it ever thinking about it but I think the bigger questions that immunology can can help us to ask are, are really important. And you, you think that's kind of how her journey led her to epigenetics? Because it is from the outside, um, and as someone who's the closest I got to understanding immunology was working on an immunology journal about <laughs> years ago. It, it doesn't seem related, but from what you're saying, it is related. It's absolutely fundamental. You know, you all the immune system starts from precursor stem cells so these are like uh multipotent stem cells that means they can become all sorts of different types of cells so why do they become some and not others how do they in some cases remain as stem cells you know every time a stem cell divides it has to decide am i going to stay being stem cells because you still need stem cells or is one of the cells that i've just divided into is that going to go and start making decisions going to maybe become a, a t cell or a b cell or a different type of immune cell and then all those kind of subdivisions after that these are very very specialist cells in some cases and so they all kind of branch down this tree of decisions and all of those decisions they are not you know they're not kind of done by changing the dna they're done by changing how you use the DNA, how you turn the genes on and off. And that fundamentally is what epigenetics is. You know, how do you turn these genes on and off and remember what you are doing? And that's that's always been the stuff that I've been fascinated by. What do you think has been the main impact of uh, Fisher's work in epigenetics? She gets a lot of credit for her work in HIV. That was obviously quite a long time ago. But her work on epigenetics, on these cell fate decisions in immune cells, I think it's really important because she's someone who kind of takes a very broad overview. She's someone who thinks about cells and genes and the immune system all together. And it's very easy to get kind of very, very into the very nerdy kind of details in, in immune system genes. You know, you can just look at precise patterns of gene expression. But she always remembers their cells. And then what's the bigger questions about that? 
So the sort of work that she's done has been studying some of the, the protein molecules that help cells make decisions. She's done some work studying like where these genes are located in the, the nucleus in the middle of a cell. Uh, she's done a lot of work showing, for example, that when you take an immune cell, take an immune cell that's made all the decisions it's going to make, and then you put it back into an egg cell or to an embryonic stem cell, what happens? How does it get reprogrammed? How does it kind of forget everything it was doing and go back to a more naive state? So she's done a lot of work that's been very important showing how do, how do these cells make their decisions? And then how can you erase that information and go back to the start again? And so once we start to understand that process um, and, and understand how we can kind of, you know, create stem cells, I mean, that is kind of one of the holy grails of of medicine isn't it to sort of be able to to wind cells back to their stem cell state and then be able to reprogram them to become something else yeah and it's an area that's getting really cool and really exciting so it was a nobel prize uh, a couple of years ago which was won by john gurdon who did the original frog cloning work. He was the first person to clone a vertebrate back in the 60s, I think. Um, I should remember. <laughs> I think I wrote a paper on it at university. Um, but also the other person who won was a guy called Shinya Yamanaka, who's a Japanese researcher, who discovered that you can take adult cells like skin cells or immune cells and you just add four chemicals, sort of four proteins, and they will go all the way back to becoming stem cells. And he called these induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs. And this kind of discovery that you can kind of throw cells forward in time, you can throw them backward in time, you can take a skin cell, wind the clock back and set it off on a journey to becoming a pancreas cell or a heart muscle cell or a brain cell. This is really, really cool stuff. I think this is going to be the future of medicine and, and the future of cell biology. And, uh, and all the kind of studies that people like Mandy Fisher have been doing is trying to understand, like, what is going on? What's going on at the kind of the genes, the molecules level, the nuts and bolts of how are these genes getting unpacked, repacked, getting read, getting shut down, getting switched on? What is going on at that kind of level? Wow, yeah, it, it seems like a huge task. Biology is always, I found, you know, more mind boggling in many ways than most other sciences because it's just so fiendishly complicated. So in terms of, of Mandy's career, I mean, is there anything else that, that has really caught your eye and, and really struck you about the work that she's done? Well, the other thing that I really want to draw attention to and massively praise her for is her work supporting women in science. So she's been running a project called Suffrage Science for quite a few years that I've also been involved with for a long time. And that was kind of drawing on the inspiration of the suffragettes. So, you know, trying to get women the vote. Um, but it was recognising women in science and really holding them up. So it's kind of the stuff that you're doing through Finding Ada. And the suffrage science projects, it started as designing pieces of heirloom jewellery. And what was quite nice is they picked out the suffragette colours, the green, the white and the purple um, in these these pieces of jewellery. They were all designed by students at Central St. Martins. And Mandy's got a very close relationship with the design and the arts team at Central St. Martins. So they designed these beautiful pieces of jewellery. And the idea is it's kind of a sort of a mentoring thing that every two years a researcher will pass on their piece of jewellery to sort of an up and coming woman working in their field who they just really want to recognize, to support, to say, you're a rising star, you're doing great stuff. And then kind of two years later, that person passes it on again. And now there are uh, physics ones, there are biology ones, I think they're just about to start computing ones. And it's a really, really lovely scheme that recognizes women in science and recognizes that kind of the sort of the, the kinship, the sisterhood, the idea that you support, you pass on, you bring up the next generation. And she's just been phenomenal in her support for that project um, as well. And also some other art science projects she's done with Central St. Martins, putting Nobel laureates together with textile designers to come up with all these 
beautiful and amazing textile designs. Um, she's been involved in a, a project that I write for called the Biomedical Picture of the Day, where every day we're picking out really beautiful images from the biological sciences. And it was kind of based on the uh, astronomical picture of the day. It was like, well, why do the astronomers get all the fun? Let's turn the uh, the microscope on, on biology rather than training the telescope on the stars. So there was one called Scopic, which was kind of looking down the microscope at cells and then looking up the telescope at the stars and, and this kind of wonderful art science project with school kids. Her passion, her enthusiasm for taking her science out of the lab and, uh, you know, changing the lives of women scientists and just changing the lives of the public, helping them to see all this beautiful and amazing stuff that is in our biology. I, I just think she's she's my inspiration, basically. It is it is awesome, I think, that with science communication, you know, so often when we talk about that, we, we tend to think of either TV or news articles. And actually, kind of, there's so many more aspects of communication than just TV and, and words. You know, art is, is, a, is a huge hugely important way to communicate aspects of science and I, I just think that her projects are so amazing they really are I'm, I'm gonna go in and look them up because they sound fantastic yeah I mean the suffrage science project is lovely it's just a, a wonderful in the, in the same way that finding Ada is it's a lovely kind of catalogue of fantastic women scientists and you know when people go oh there are no women scientists that I could book for my event or, or highlight in my kind of thing it's like they're all here, you know, we are writing, we are talking about amazing women scientists. And, uh, you know, and I just think there can't be enough projects that are highlighting um, the achievements of women in science. Uh, I think it's really, really important. And one of the lovely things I got to do, actually, was I got to have a conversation with a couple of women. We were kind of writing a booklet quite a long time ago. And just reminiscing about all these people like Mary Lyon, who was a woman who discovered that one of the X chromosomes in female cells gets shut down. Uh, memories of Barbara McClintock, who was mostly just completely ignored in her scientific lifetime. And, uh, and then finally won a Nobel Prize, I think, at the age of 83 for her work discovering transposons, jumping genes. You know, there are so many stories that we really, really need to highlight. And it's, it's wonderful to talk to women, particularly older women in science, because they've got the perspective on the generation before them. And, uh, and kind of drawing out those stories is, is a lovely thing to do. Oh, it is. It's fantastic. And I, I feel like even with the work that, that Ada Lovelace Day and, and that we do, it's just scratching the surface. There are so many amazing women in STEM. It's just, it's fantastic to hear their stories. So uh, thank you so much, Kat, for telling us about Dame Amanda Fisher. It's been really interesting. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Kat for giving us this peek inside Professor Dame Amanda Fisher's work. You can find out more about both Kat and Amanda on our website at findingada.com podcast. You can follow Kat on Twitter at Kat underscore Arnie, and that's Kat with a K, and you can visit her website at catarnie.com. Her latest book, Herding Hemingway's Cat, which explores how our genes work, is out now, and there's a link to it in our show notes. Thanks again to our sponsor, Arm, for their ongoing support. And thanks also to our editor, Andrew Marks, and to our new contributor, Melanie Phillips. You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, please do share it with your friends. In our next episode, we're going to be talking to mathematician Dr. Carola Schoenlieb about how she uses maths in image processing. And Hilary Harper Abernethy is going to talk to us about astronomer Caroline Herschel. So, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next month. <laughs>